0: I'd like to talk tonight about nurturing our aspiration to be free uh, in daily life. One of the um, things that touches me most when I go to Upper Burma uh, is that I touch into an environment where there's a lot of support for our own aspiration for freedom, and I think that it's what I miss the most when I'm not there. I think that that aspiration is in all of us, and yet there are so many layers that get covered over that it's a very sweet, deep adoration, actually, I think, in all human beings. So I'd like to talk about some of the tools that we might um, use to nurture our spiritual life in daily practice. When I left my first retreat in 1975, I had this feeling that I was getting liberated as I was leaving <laughs> <laughs> instead of the other way around. And, and I just had that feeling, yippee, I don't have to pay attention anymore. Mm-hmm. you know. And I just kind of bathed in that feeling of delusion <laughs> and ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back to my old ways. Uh, and it took me a while to get up the... Um, courage to go to my next retreat. But at that point, at the end of that retreat, I didn't want to come out. Mm -hmm. And I felt this huge loss leaving the retreat. And over the years, I found coming in in and out of retreat, that uh, it slowly sank in that this is a way of life. You know, we create certain conditions that uh, create a sacred space. Uh, and it will feel like leaving here, something different happens. Uh, but it's not that different. You know, so what? what is similar about our life here and there? Seeing, hearing, touching, <laughs> smelling, tasting, thinking, you know, the same Things are happening at the sense doors. But what's different is that we're not as protected. You know, we're not as supported. Uh, It's a very refined atmosphere here in comparison to most of our lives. The bottom line is that we really need to remember. our intention to understand rather than to judge experience. And retreat is like an incubator for that. You know, it's like a purification of our motivation, a purification of intention. And when we're not as protected, that's what gets covered over uh, and we forget. So what's different about our lives is that there's a kind of daily bombardment of stimulation. Uh, And if we don't watch out, our spiritual life or our spiritual aspiration goes to the bottom of the list. And then it disappears from the list. I'm a great list maker, so if you don't make lists, this might not make sense. But you know, you have all these things that you have to do. And they become so compelling that after a while, one forgets that there could be something else. Of course, the four of us up here will highly recommend trying to find time each day to be quiet. You know, at the least to call it quiet time. And that might mean, you know, if you have some semblance of discipline to sit every day. You know, of course we would recommend that. You know, and it, some people it might be 20 minutes, some people it might be half an hour. We would recommend at least 45. Sitting groups, you know, finding a group to sit with once in a while, if not once a week. Uh, coming on retreats, you know, finding ways to renew ourselves. I find that going for a walk by myself, quietly, is very different than going for a walk with somebody and talking the whole time. You know, so there's so many ways that we can look at our life and see if we can eke out daily some kind of quiet. I know at times that it's when I go to lay down late at night to go to sleep that that's the quiet time. Mm. But I, I try to make use of that. You know, even if it's just a few minutes before I conk out, you know, that I use that as a practice time. In terms of quiet, recently Sayadaw Upandita, a teacher from Burma, our teacher from Burma, one of our teachers from Burma, um, was teaching in Hawaii. And we were driving him somewhere. And he's very observant. I was uh, (laughs) noticing him noticing things. Uh, He was in the front seat with Steve. And his eyes lit up and he said, Americans like the color green. They don't like the color red. We were at a a traffic light. And it was just so funny, you know, (laughs) Americans like the color green. And when you think about it, we do. We really don't like the color red in terms of having to stop, you know, to slow down. And when I first started noticing myself at at stop signs and red lights, the way I was conditioned was to treat them as an obstacle. And I'd be very impatient. And, at this point in my life, I usually look forward to them. (laughs) You know, it's just, oh, thank God I have a few seconds to be quiet. You know, it's just, how do we relate to going so fast, and rushing, and having so much to do? So, we can start to be grateful for the things that used to seem like obstacles. Mother Teresa says something quite beautiful about quiet. An interviewer asked her once what she says when she prays to God. And she said, I don't say anything, I just listen. Mm -hmm. And so the interviewer said, well, what does God say to you when you pray to him? And she said, he doesn't say anything, he just listens. (laughs) 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 and she said if you don't understand that there's no way that I can explain it to you you know that's quiet you know there's no attachment to result there yet so can we manage to recognize the value of that in my first retreats that's what started to happen was just that ability to consciously recognize how important solitude quiet is for renewal and for cleansing one thing that we tend to be very good at is washing our clothes washing our house you know cleaning the car But are we conditioned to clean our heart or clean the mind? And this is what we're doing here. The reason why the first few days of a retreat is often difficult is because we've accumulated so much stuff, uh, and we haven't cleaned it out. And when you think about how how much we do. You know, I just like these kind of graphic examples, because I think they get the point across. If you didn't clean the bathroom sink after a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, what happens? Ugh! You know, I mean, it's just disgusting, yeah? Well, that's how we are. (laughs) You know, that's how our minds are. That's how our our hearts are. And often the only way we get any feedback on that is to come on a retreat and actually experience what it feels like at the end. We don't usually remember the beginning or we wouldn't come back. (laughs) You know, all that cleaning out is painful, but it feels so good to be cleaned out. Daily practice is, is that cleansing. And sometimes it takes us time to get it. You know, it's, it's a visceral feeling. We get very quiet on a retreat, even if we've kicked and screamed the whole way. You know, we get quiet in spite of ourselves and clean in spite of ourselves. So we recommend that you're gentle the next few days. You know, not everybody out there is wishing each other well. <laughs> you know, in this way it's like when you go back you'll just start to see it's not as refined and you're more refined and it takes a few days to get gross again. <laughs> and that's not a value judgment, it's just it's just getting back into the swing of things. <coughs> So be gentle. And that means if you have a very busy life that you take breaks in kind of s- quiet ways. In my life sometimes I'll just stay longer in the bathroom. You know, <laughs> if it's just, if I'm having a busy time and I just need a little more quiet, you know, it's just whatever you can eke out, uh, it's just important. If it feels like you're new, and you don't recognize what that is the first few days. Like, you know, why do I feel so overwhelmed? It's just that you're not used to this much stimulation coming in, because it is so quiet here, and you'll get used to it again. We get used to it all too quickly, actually. Mm -hmm. There are many practices, spiritual practices, right speech you know many many hours of talks could be given on a creativity around being watching our speech and you had some you know experience with that today and just to how it fe- how it feels when we stop again and just the energy in the body and the quality of our listening when we've had some quiet time the way that uh Stephen and I first started teaching young adult retreats, it's set up so that they do some hours of silence, and then they have a discussion group that they stay in the whole time of the retreat. And they have it several times a day after a chunk of quiet time. And they learn very quickly the relationship between the quiet, the inner quiet, and intimacy. You know, the, the intimacy that we really want and yearn for. Uh, and it's, I feel like it's our greatest gift to these young adults, is them understanding that so young, you know, that they start to value that kind of closeness. Um, it's, it's wonderful to see them get it so quickly. we can use a lot of creativity in how we apply these practices in our daily life. Uh, And this, again, could take a lot of long (laughs) hours of explaining. But for example, once you know the mindfulness practice, once you know the loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity practice, as you can see, there could be a lot of choice. And when you look at how much time we really have, and then, you know, to kind of eke out, I mean in terms of formal practice, a formal kind of sitting practice, it's usually good to keep it somewhat simple. So, I recommend that if there's one Brahma Vihara that you really connect with, that you stay with that, and develop it. For some people that might mean they do 10 or 15 minutes of that Brahma Vihara and then the rest of the sitting, mindfulness. As you can see, the, <laughs> the combinations are kind of infinite. So it could be that you do five days of mindfulness and two days of Brahma-vihara. Or, you know, I know people who, when they're exercising, that's when they do the Brahma-viharas. <laughs> you know, one woman that I know for years have been doing it as she does laps in a pool. I find driving in traffic a great place to do brahmavihāra practice. In any time where you're waiting and it feels like you might be wasting time, it can shift very quickly into a great opportunity to practice. When I first started applying the brahmavihāras to my life, I found them integrate more easily in some ways in the mindfulness practice. Uh, maybe it's because it's so tangible in terms of relationship. There's a very large um, grocery store that Stephen and I go to right near our house. And it's one of those big kind, not a mom and pop store. Uh, and those kind of large stores like a Costco or even you know the big pharmacies that are coming in can seem kind of alienating if you're used to. A more store, a more intimate store, uh, and this whole complex of a uh, big grocery store, pharmacy, etc. I call Mecca. You know, it has a it has a bank, it has <laughs> the food, and I call it Mecca because I pay my respects there every day. <laughs> and I try to have that relationship that you know I'm going to the temple. Uh, And I used to feel kind of alienated, because no one would recognize me and I'd, you know, be traveling a lot, coming in and out. And I started doing Brahma Vihara practice with the people in the store. You just can't believe the difference. Mm -hmm. It's like I go in and somebody who might have once kind of been grumpy when I was going through the line, and I take them as a difficult person, I look forward to seeing them. And they have no idea. You know, it's kind of fun. If you do this with someone or other, it it grows over the years. So there are a number of people in the different places I go that I've done the the practices with, and they feel like family. And there is sometimes a shift in your relationship with people. They notice that you feel (laughs) really happy to see them. It's interesting. This can be done with neighbors. This can be done at work. And these are very powerful. It's like medicine. Very powerful. I recommend also creating a reasonable expectation for yourself. I used to leave retreats and expect so much from myself in terms of daily practice that then I'd get frustrated and say, it doesn't work, I can't do it, forget it, I'm not going to do anything then. You know, it's just, I, I, I was trying too hard. Uh, and then I kind of gave up. And then I found, a, a I felt like a middle path, a right balance of how much I thought I could do, and I would do it. So if you have trouble, because some people, they just have a kind of ease with a, a discipline. They kind of are steady with their daily practice. Other people have more difficulty. And I think some of it is just setting up a routine that actually will work for you. So, if you leave here saying, you know, I'm going to do four hours of (laughs) Brahma-Viharas, you know, two hours of, you know, whatever, I mean, that's an exaggeration. But, you know, if you're going to try to do too much, it often backfires. So, think of what is realistic for you. Do it. And sometimes you can even add on to that over time. This wasn't a mindfulness retreat, uh, but one of the things to remember is that with each moment of consciousness comes a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And we have no no control over this. So we really never know what's going to happen. That's called dukkha. Uh, And we haven't been looking directly at dukkha (laughs) in this retreat. We've certainly gone through it off and on. uh, But we haven't been talking about it as directly. If we look at what the Buddha is teaching and what we're attempting, it's, it's really to come to grips with the way life is. That there is this incredible change. We don't know what's going to happen, whether something's going to be pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And we look at, well, what, what have we used as protection and safety? And when we look closely, we look at that we have used aversion to pain, attachment to pleasure, and delusion as our defense system. That's the human journey, is that we learn that conditioning. We come in with some of that conditioning. And then the spiritual journey is one of waking up and seeing that we don't really need to use that, and that in fact it's very painful. It's a misperception. It creates a duality and a misperception of a separate self. So what we replace that defense of aversion, attachment, and delusion with, is mindfulness, metta, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, equanimity. And that slowly happens. If you have an aspiration to be free, and you have the sense that you can do the best you can at this, and just keep doing the best you can at this, it happens. It might not happen in the speed you want. You know, if you have some patience, it's inevitable that the freedom will develop. So besides um, wishing each other well, caring about pain, appreciating joy, and having a deep balance of mind, unconditional acceptance, mindfulness. There are so many practices, spiritual practices, and tools that it can seem vast. So I really don't want to give you a sense of overwhelm, but I just wanted to give you a sense of more of a recognition of actually how much spiritual practice you do. Because we do a lot, and we often don't recognize it or value it. So for example, gratitude is a practice, forgiveness is a practice, morality is a practice, generosity is a practice. There is, you know, determination is a practice. Uh, there are many, many spiritual qualities that we can develop. And some of them we come into a lifetime with. Where we tend to be strong, it's we came in with it, and you can see this in people. You know what your strengths and weaknesses are, and you can see them in other people. So instead of focusing on <laughs> where you haven't developed, uh, I would really recommend appreciating, you know, even assessing where you're strong spiritually and appreciate it and start to start to work on maybe where it's difficult so some people might have really good concentration but might be really stingy (laughs) you know that that's just them and they need to be able to appreciate that they're really um, strong at something and also need to work a little bit on letting go When I go to Burma, I try to bring an extra suitcase of things for the school because they don't seem to have anything. (laughs) 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 Uh, And sometimes you can find things like in Rangoon or Mandalay, but the quality isn't so good. So, this year, for example, for myself, I was rushing before I left and I forgot some things. And I bought some Q-tips in Rangoon, thinking that they'd be like our (laughs) Q-tips. And then, you know, I unwrapped this thing that even the wrapper looked like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble, you know, that it didn't seem sanitary. And then I felt like I was getting splinters from even holding it. And then the cotton, the little teeny tiny bit of cotton fell off. (laughs) So it was really like if I dared use it as a toothpick. Um, (laughs) You know, so I like to try to bring some things in for the school. So, I've come three years, and people have brought, people who come to the retreat have brought things for the school, like puzzles for the kids, or a globe, or, you know, crayons, watercolors. So, we built the school this year, and there was a ceremony. And and uh, I had me come into this classroom at the end of the ceremony and I was just stunned. I, it was sometime, I think I still don't quite get, you know, what this was, but they had all the things out on these desks that we'd ever given them out. And it was all in really good condition. So I looked really closely to see if the the children had used the puzzles, and they had. Um, But it was just so well taken care of, and everything was just in uh, just about perfect condition. And I just had—I was just in shock for like five or ten minutes—and realized that what they had was all—all they had was what we had given them, and it was so precious to them, you know, that they were displaying it. Uh, It was deep, (laughs) you know, it just felt kind of overwhelming to me, in a way. The Buddha taught um, that if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. And that's so profound, you know, because we think Well, we can't practice generosity, but on a basic level, feeding someone, anyone, even a chipmunk, a bird. uh, When you think about how beings struggle to survive, you know, what what sharing really means. Generosity is a really powerful practice, Mm -hmm. you know, not to be undervalued. And what I appreciate when I go to the school, is how much uh, the children learn to appreciate receiving. It's like a big deal is made out of, even if you give a pencil to the school, a big thing is made out of it. Uh, And the children are taught to really receive it. It's, It's a wonderful thing to learn how to receive something with grace. At the end of the young adult retreat this year when we did the final circle and anyone can come up and say something and ring a bell, one young adult, young man, came up and he said, with so much gratitude, let's just breathe one more breath together mindfully (coughs) and ring the bell. You know, what we're learning to do is to receive a breath in the practice. You know, to receive our life. Generosity and receiving are so interconnected. Stephen and I have been in a process of uh, buying some land on the big island of Hawaii for a retreat center. And one of the Intentions is really to start with a vision of seven generations. and So we're seeing it as um, starting with that intention. Not ending there, but at least starting with that vision right away. And there are several places on the land that are sacred sites to the native Hawaiian people and there were heiaus there. A heiau is a temple uh, but the temples, the heiaus were bulldozed over into the ocean when sugar cane was planted and there's a native Hawaiian woman who uh, we've gotten close to and spent some time on the land adjacent to ours, a heiau there. And she said that the stones, or the pohaku, that the heiau or temples, were made out of don't make a place sacred, but it's actually the land itself is sacred where they would place those stones. So the stones are just marking a sacred place. Uh, And there are so many places uh, that are marked on this land. Uh, That we feel a real um, commitment to protecting these places. It's like we, we felt called in to do that. So recently we were upstream from where the stream is that goes through this land with this Native Hawaiian woman. And she's upstream bringing back the taro. Uh, in this area that taro had been grown. Taro is the Polynesian staple crop. When you go down into this area that she and over a hundred Native Hawaiians have replanted, it's like going into a cathedral. One of the most amazing cathedrals I've ever been in. And she's had us, um, we're trying to um, connect in a working way with her, because she also wants to bring back the tarot on the land that we are buying, eventually. So we've been weeding, but one day we decided with her to start clearing out the stream of debris and branches. Uh, So Steve and I and some friends spent the day pulling these big logs and branches, and. Um, leaves. And um, a lot of my life, you know, I'm sitting doing interviews or sitting in a hall, and I haven't been doing such physical, in you know, all-day <laughs> chainsaw kind of work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'd never really spent time cleaning out a stream like that. So by halfway through the day, uh, I saw it as a metaphor for, you know, spiritual practice. Like if you look at today, or even yesterday, or the retreat, uh, there's a feeling of cleaning, yeah. And sometimes fear will feel like a big log that you have to experience and work with, and then the stream flows more freely. Uh, I'm not sure I'm getting this metaphor across that well, but to actually see how this water flows through this cathedral, uh, that their food was growing in their cathedral. um, We sometimes lose touch with that connection, that interconnectedness of life. So we're very hopeful that that interconnectedness with the food and the stream um, and the practice come together on this land uh, for the next seven generations. A practice we didn't go into, but is another huge practice, is forgiveness. And the phrases that are taught are, if I have harmed anyone or any being, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask their forgiveness. If anyone or any being has harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive them. If I have harmed myself, Knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive myself. And for some people, this really helps soften their practice at the beginning of a retreat, beginning of the metta sittings. So if you find a connection with this practice and the forgiveness, we recommend doing it. Some people find that the heart just closes down at the thought of forgiveness. (laughs) And a lot of stuff comes up, which is why we tend to wait till the end of a retreat to bring it up sometimes. uh, And that it seems kind of far away and too difficult. So that would be something you might wait a while for, or just do a little bit of. And for some people, they take the middle path with it. You know, it's an important practice, but maybe something they don't do every day. If we look closely at forgiveness, forgiveness doesn't mean we're condoning anything. We're not condoning harmful behavior, but we're accepting that it happened. You know, we're just accepting the fact that it happened in the truth of things. And this takes a lot of deep understanding and wisdom. And the reason I mentioned our defense system of aversion and attachment and delusion is because they are happening in the human world. And as much as we don't like it, it's happening a lot. Often I joke with people that in the Buddhist cosmology, There's 31 planes of existence, and we're fifth from the bottom. (laughs) And you know, it's a really good perspective. If we wonder why the human world is so intensely difficult, we're considered so close to the animal realm. um, And it's a world of great suffering. So even if you don't believe in maybe 31 realms of existence, all you have to do is just take a look Mm -hmm. and see that we might not be that highly evolved as a species, (laughs) you know, and that the reason that that is is because we tend to identify so much with aversion or attachment or delusion. Forgiveness... how do we cope without it? You know, it's like the more you get to know your own mind, the more forgiving you'll be. The less you understand your own mind, the more judgmental you'll be. The first time I got a good look at forgiveness for a difficult person, This very deep childhood wound had surfaced, and um, it took me five hours to just kind of stay with the pain, and stay with the pain, until I saw the difference between condoning behavior and accepting that it happened. And this was like an epiphany. It was so important for me to get that distinction. It didn't mean, at that point, that I could forgive. And then, several years later, I had a moment where I did forgive. And it was another epiphany. And I thought, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> it's over. But it wasn't. And it was such a surprise. It was such a deep wound that it was like the beginning, rather than the end. And it's kept cycling, and cycling, and cycling. I learned so much from this. I learned it was okay not to forgive. And I learned that deep wounds can take a lot of time to heal. Uh, and that forgiveness is a process. With easy people, with easy um, things, it's, it can be fairly easy. With some difficult things, it can be really difficult. If one has patience, compassion, compassion for oneself and the other, it can happen over time. But please see it as a process with difficult situations, rather than something that should happen and happen once and be finished. One of the most powerful stories I've ever heard about forgiveness um, was about a Native American, Navajo um, man who had been in World War II and he had been, his hands and feet had been nailed to a floor. I found it so amazing to hear him speak because he had forgiven this person, who had nailed him to the floor. But he said that it was harder for him to forgive this man than to go through the experience of torture. And that was all I needed to kind of finally understand why, you know, when something's really painful, that's why. It's harder than the actual experience to forgive. And he was so full of love. You know, it was like he had done it. it. It took him many years, but he had done it. And I felt so happy for him. And he was helping so many people by having that courage and strength to do that. <coughs> This really intersects with the equanimity practice that unconditional acceptance things are as they are. That practice takes an understanding of karma or kama. And the teaching around aversion, attachment, delusion is, is that if we act if we take an action out of aversion, attachment, or delusion, that it will have certain repercussions. And if we act out of a place of metta, or mindfulness, or compassion, it will have certain repercussions. That's called cause-effect, cause-effect, cause-effect. And it's a basic insight in this practice, whether we understand it in a lifetime or lifetimes. Someone came into an interview with me recently and said, I wish when I was a boy someone had taught me that my actions have consequences. (laughs) Now that's, that's so important for us. I had a kind of distant, extremely distant, relationship with my father. But I asked him in my lifetime, three three times I've asked him for advice. The first time was whether to go on a blind date. And he said, you know, I don't think you're going to like it. But I did it anyway. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> and then the second time, well, it was uh, something about, I wanted, I had worked hard to save money to buy a car, and then I decided to sell it, to build a barn um, for a cow. And he said, <laughs> <laughs> he said, I really can't understand why you would want to do that. And I did it, and I regretted it. <laughs> I liked having the barn and the cow, but um, I really missed having the, actually an aside to that is that my father has uh i mean his idea of liberation i think growing up was having a car and enlightenment so that i could sell my car for a barn was really beyond him i'm surprised he actually gave me any more advice (laughs) because i never listened to it uh, (laughs) the third time I was having this very deep moral dilemma, and I felt like the there were people around me who were doing something that I didn't believe in, but that I was feeling like, well, if they're doing it, I might as well um, and I asked his advice, uh, knowing that he had had trouble in this area of his life as well, um, so I really. Since I hadn't listened to him twice, uh, I, was, I was suffering, so I did it, but I wasn't really thinking I would listen to him. So I was on the phone, and I told him what was happening, and there was this dead silence, and he said, um, <laughs> I have absolutely no <laughs> advice, but he said, whatever you do, I know you have to live with it. And it was actually the best advice I've ever been given. Because it was deep. It wasn't, it wasn't on the surface. And I could feel the pain of his lifetime in it. The pain of so many choices that were so painful that he hadn't resolved. And it was really just this feeling of, um, you know, whatever you decide to do, you're really going to have to live with the consequences Uh, And it was so deep, it pulled me out of that sense that no matter what anyone else was doing, that I had to live with what I was going to do. And there was some kind of almost, you know, that healthy fear um, of the consequences that I think are really important for us human beings. You know, this is part of um, a practice. It's the practice of non-harming. The precepts are a practice. When I'm in Burma and I teach in Burma, the sayadaw expects me to be on eight precepts as a teacher. It's unthinkable to him to think I wouldn't be on eight. That means not eating afternoon. You know, it's like that's just how it is there. Um, It would be unthinkable, that we wouldn't be on five precepts in our daily life. You know, it's just, that's how it is. Now, I'm not saying that's done in any way to be um, a commandment, but really that's how seriously non-harming is taken as a practice, and as a discipline. And there are so many ways that we can talk about all of this. You can see I'm just kind of touching into these practices uh, as a way to see what we're doing in a human life. And there might be somebody who really practices morality well, but maybe has a hard time with mindfulness. You see, it's like, It's not always that easy. We have some things that are easy, but some really take work and practice. That can be exciting and challenging when you realize we have this precious gift of life. And what are we doing with it? A lot of it is remembering. (coughs) Reminding ourselves, remembering. If I don't have time, to take any formal practice in my daily life. All I try to do when I get up for just a few minutes is to get into touch with the intention not to harm. Now, if everybody did that on the planet, you know, that would be a big step. It, and it doesn't take any time. We often think that we don't have time for these practices, but actually, I find that even if I just take a minute to do that, it actually only takes a few seconds, technically, to do that. But it's a touchstone during the day. You know, if I say something that I regret, it's at least, I bounce back into that intention. Oh yeah. (laughs) And we do say things that we regret. If we don't feel that, we're getting numb. It's so much better to feel regret than not feel regret. It might hurt a little, but ah, how wonderful for the heart to be alive. The last practice that I wanted to remember was, um, I mean, to remind you of is... If you have a connection to nature, to cultivate it. For me, it's uh, like the air I breathe. It's such an important practice for me. You know, it's nurturing, it's supportive, it's uh, so joyful. So if you feel that there's not that much joy in your life, I would guess that it's because one isn't connecting enough to the birds. <laughs> I feed the birds every morning, and no matter how much it's like, you know, waking up and maybe not wanting to do this or that, feeding the birds kind of can pull you out of any mind state. They just kind of go, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just such a different world, you know. <laughs> And it's a great world. Maybe it's a cat instead of a bird, or maybe it's a dog. But just some connection with a being, other than human, is really powerful. Hmm. There's a poem somebody sent me from the New Yorker called, The Job. And this is what it might feel to you that practice in daily life can seem like. The job. Imagine that the job were so delicate that you could seldom, almost never, remember it. Impossible work, really. Like placing pebbles exactly where they were already. The steadiness it takes. And to what end? It's so easy to forget again. The first part of a moment of mindfulness is remembering to be here. You know, and it's just we're either lost or we're here. Two choices. It's like in The Matrix, the red pill or the blue pill. (laughs) (laughs) The trouble is, is that we make that choice every moment, not just once. You know, in that movie, it was like so critical when he took the red pill or blue pill, and it is a big decision. Usually, the first few times we make that decision, it will feel like the stakes are high, And it's a big decision. But over time, one feels like how important it is. Do you want to be here or not? And so you do the best you can. You can't force it, but you can set that intention. You can incline the mind and set the intention. And over the time, again, I can guarantee that it builds and it grows from that nurturing of that intention. Stephen and I planted, oh, Stephen and I, and Chandra, actually, our daughter, planted a mango tree some time ago in our backyard. Probably it was about 1984. And we live in a, a kind of a dry part of the island. Over the years, you know, it sunk its roots in, and then it, its branches started to grow, it started to flower. But it's taken a long time for the fruit to come. And one year, you know, some mangoes came, maybe five or six, and we were all excited. Three years went by before another mango came. You know, and <laughs> I, you know, I used to go out there and kind of go. <laughs> 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 but that tree has taught me so much. It takes time for the tree to grow strong enough to hold the fruit. You know, so all these practices that I'm mentioning, generosity, non-harming, forgiveness, mindfulness, metta, patience, gratitude, these are all practices that do bear fruit. uh, But it takes time for them (coughs) to actually, you know, fruit, because we have to get strong enough to hold it. But it happens. It's like that's what I find so amazing. After doing this practice for so long, you know, I always just want to tell people, if I can do it, you can do it. And it happens.